trust. What is that? I mean, really. When you say, I trust you to do the right thing, it's because you expect the other person not to be compromised, not to have malicious intent in any way. The same is true with software. Microsoft has its trustworthy computing initiative to get the world to see that we can trust the programs that we run from Microsoft as secure. And if they're not, Microsoft will issue a patch in a timely fashion. Well, what about the hardware? What about the chips? For that, we see Intel and other chip manufacturers coming out with something called Secure Boot. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's a way for the chip to cryptographically validate that the firmware is issued from the vendor and that it hasn't been altered. This is the story about a trust vulnerability in a secure boot feature of an embedded system that is in ICS devices in use today. And the consequences of that. I'm Robert Vimosi. This is Error Code. My name is Ang Sui. I am the founder of Red Balloon Security. I should disclose up front that I first met Ong about 10 years ago, when he was still a grad student at Columbia University. I wrote about the work Ong was doing at the time in Forbes. First, he hacked commercial printers to find a laser printer firmware update that could be compromised to include additional and possibly malicious code. He then applied the same thinking to hack the 7900 series of the Cisco Unified Voice over IP phones, also known as Cisco TMP phones, which were used at the time within the U.S. federal government. And he even showed me photographs of various high-ranking offices attesting to this. What he could do then with these compromised phones was listen to office conversations, eavesdrop, even when the phone was still in its cradle. I should note that Cisco patched this vulnerability very quickly, but the incident reminded me that within the Internet of Things, best intentions can sometimes turn out to be dark and not at all what we were promised in our future. You know, I was, I was actually thinking back to it, right? Like the stuff that we'll probably get into today makes that research and that time just like seem so quaint. You know, what a what an innocent time, right? Like. Ugh, the future is here and it's a dystopian future. It's been my fundamental belief that our IoT future can be fantastic. That is only if we take what we've learned in the information security and apply it to embedded systems. And of course, we have not, at least not within the last 15 years. That, I think, is in part because so few companies today in the security space are specifically looking at the problems of IoT and embedded systems. Uh, well, Repelent Security does embedded security. We've been doing it for a decade. That's all we do. And we have a, a, we have an array of firmware level security technologies that we put into commercial devices. And we also help uh, our customers design safer, more secure embedded devices that run the world. Red Balloon is one of those companies that has been looking for the security of IoT and embedded systems. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, yeah, we, we specialize in all things embedded security, right? So basically, if it's a computer that runs anything important, that doesn't look like a desktop or a laptop, that's what we're all about. A lot of people don't realize that their printer has a hard drive and even a web server built into it. 
or that the voice over IP phones in most offices today have their own real-time operating systems with layers of software running on top. This wasn't something that, at the time, people were thinking of when they designed these. And that's the power of IoT, enabling just about everything around us to be smart. So on the one hand, we have this convenient device at our fingertips, but on the other, we don't necessarily see how it interacts with everything else. And therefore, we don't often see how it can be vulnerable and be a problem. So that's 2012, right? We're talking about, hey, look, this phone used to, you know, this it's in the shape of like a typical phone, but if you open the box, what do you know? It looks, it's like a computer, right? And the same thing for the printer. Um, I think the whole community, right? And the user base, yeah, I think we've come a long way, right? I, I don't think today, like people will be surprised to think, huh, that thing that I used to make phone calls and stuff, right? That has a microphone can be hacked, right? Like, so I think, you know, we're, we've gotten farther than... <laughs> 2012, but um, yeah, like the, the problem, it's still the same problem. And just the, the, the scale of the problem and the stakes that we're talking about keeps going up and up. In this episode, we're going to be talking specifically about industrial control systems or ICS. This is the Industrial Internet of Things or IIoT. As such, we might be talking about some terms that you might not have encountered before if you are new to embedded systems. For example, we're going to be talking about PLCs. PLC, industrial control, right? Like a programmable logic controller. Um, it sounds fancy, but, you know, these days you probably, every conveyor belt, every elevator door, right? Like anything that moves a motor these days is probably controlled by something that is controlled by something like a PLC, right? So in different verticals in like building automation and lab control, right? They, they have slightly different names, but at the end of the day, it is a industrial computer that's designed to work in real time to tell motors what to do and sense input to run the machinery that we depend on for everything from shipping to manufacturing to you name it. And when we say computers, we're not talking about traditional computers with familiar operating systems. These are embedded systems. These are systems on a chip. When we talk about PLCs, well, it is not your, it's not a laptop. Let's put it that way. So, you know, I think we've had We've been having this conversation for like, yeah, like a decade, right? So the same, it's the same answer now and then, uh, but you know, it is a, it looks different than a laptop or a desktop or a server. You know, it's uh, meant to go into an industrial environment. Um, it doesn't exactly have a mouse port, right? Although some of these kind of do, um, but it is a computer that runs an operating system that is like any other computer that if you connect to some kind of a network, attackers can hack and compromise, right? So that fundamental fact of life of like anything that computes and talks to other things is true for all embedded things too. So given this industrial landscape, what Red Balloon announced recently is specifically a vulnerability that affects a pretty large number of devices. Uh, yeah, well, so, you know, the thing that we're, you know, the heart of the vulnerability is for a specific, you know, like a very popular line of PLCs that run probably double digit percentage of the entire world's industrial automation, right? Um, and we're talking about, yeah, a problem in the heart of how that device does secure boot. Okay, so continuing with our definitions, what then is a secure boot? All right, so let's talk about the spirit of secure boot, right? What it wants to do, and this is something that 
you know, laptops do it, your phone does it, right? Um, is um, yeah, it as it boots up, you know, it's just the computer. So if it boots up code that um you know, like has a backdoor or a code that's not made by the manufacturer or the vendor, right? You know, if it has malware on it, then it will boot and run that code, which might contain things that you don't want it to do. So, you know, that's like the rosy view of what secure boot does, but it is a thing that just enforces that the computer that you have in front of you only boots firmware from, let's say, a specific supplier or source of that code, right? And this is typically implemented by, yeah, verifying a signature, right, generated by the manufacturer, which has the certificate to be able to sign firmware and no one else can do it. Digital signing is a means of having a certificate confirm that the code presented is legitimate. It requires the PLC to look at that certificate and say, yeah, that's legitimate. We call it secure boot, but it really just tells you that the code that the vendor wanted to run is loaded into memory and is about to run, right? It doesn't actually tell, talk about the status or like the integrity of the code as it runs. So it's all about, you know, is the code about to run like in memory, take zero, what the vendor wants it to be. So in that sense, and this is gonna be a theme, right? The reoccurring theme we're gonna come back to, you know, hardware security is a double-edged sword. So what he means is that by the same system security mechanism that can protect the system can also be used by an attacker to defeat that system if it's misconfigured. And this is a thing that, you know, our research has found a few times now, but, um, but yeah, so, you know, just even on the spirit of secure boot, what I like to say is, okay, so it guarantees that, you know, you're, you've loaded the code that the vendor wants you to run. So it also guarantees to the attacker, the hundred percent, like of known vulnerability is exactly in memory as they would expect it. If there's a vulnerability, I mean, not just with some certainty, right? Like if you know the firmware that it's loading and you've looked at it and you have a vulnerability, yeah, it's guaranteed to be in memory and execute, right? Because every machine will do that. So yeah, this applies to like your laptop servers, Xbox, right? Like it's an old story over and over again, but that's the other side of, you know, this double-edged sword of hardware security. So this is important. If secure boot means that the firmware is being held in memory, if an attacker has access to the firmware and has identified a vulnerability in it, a zero day inside the firmware, then the attacker will also know that with secure boot, it'll be present on the device. Boom. Because hardware can be used to make, you know, to make security easier and more enforceable, right? But if you use the hardware wrong, Number one, if you don't use it, the attacker can come in and use it against you on the on the device. And number two, if you use it, um, well, you might be actually stuck forever and won't be able to fix the the problem. What I like to say is, okay, so it guarantees that you know you're, you've loaded the code that the vendor wants you to run. So it also guarantees to the attacker the hundred percent like of known vulnerability is exactly in memory as they would expect it if there's a vulnerability, right? And in the hu history of humanity, I don't think we can actually point to a piece of code that does anything interesting that we can say has no vulnerability in it, right? So that's just a, another way of looking at quote unquote secure boot and what it does. But that's the other side of, you know, this double-edged sword of hardware security. Hardware is physical and unlike software, 
it can't be easily replaced. So having the wrong hardware, having a defect in the hardware itself, well, that's one thing. Another is, what if we can bypass the built-in security controls on that chip? That's just as bad as well. What that means, okay, so, you know, let's roll back. So, yes, this is a thing that allows an attacker to boot arbitrary code instead of the legitimate operating system, you know. uh, So this is the lowest possible layer. This is, you know, not just talking about executing lateral logic in the sandbox. I mean, we're talking about, like, you know, the first instruction that the CPU wants to fetch and the thing that boots up the underlying operating system can now be changed. You know, the specific vulnerability disclosure that we're talking about, um, yes, it is a bypass uh, and a design flaw in the secure boot design of essentially all S7-1500 series of Siemens PLCs, uh, CPU modules. Little, maybe a little known fact, or maybe like a well-known fact, but um, Stuxnet, right, went after the early S7s and the S5s. So basically the immediate predecessor for uh, of the device we're talking about today. Whoa, Stuxnet. For those of you that don't remember Stuxnet, this was a joint project between the U.S. and Israel to stop the nuclear enrichment program in Iran. What the program did was put malware on the centrifuge systems used for that enrichment. The program didn't crash it outright. It subtly changed the settings so that the centrifuges over time became unstable and destroyed themselves. This sent the Iranian enrichment program back in both in terms of time and money in having to replace these units. And in order to do that, the U.S. and Israel had to know exactly what centrifuges were being used and what PLCs they had. It turned out it was Siemens S7 PLC. So the research found a way to target that system and run the compromised code. It wouldn't run on any other system. Okay. All right. So where where do we find the 1500s? Well, um, so just a little bit of cursory Googling. I think, you know, the the Siemens industrial control is something like 46% of, I, I think, the U.S. market for industrial control. Uh, they have, I think, probably a larger market share in different other different continents. Um, so, and this, the 1500 line is probably the most popular mainstream line of PLCs that Siemens makes. So yeah, I think chances are, you know, if you're in a office or a warehouse or like around buildings with motors in it, you're probably depending on one of these things in one way or another. So like the elevator or the conveyor belt? Uh, Well, you know, so elevator controls fall into like building control. In Spirit, you know, it is a PLC, but application, they call it something different. But yeah, like core of like any any kind of a factory or warehouse where machinery is controlled, chances are it's being controlled by a PLC. And, you know, with like 40-ish percent, right, chances are it's probably like Siemens PLC because they are one of the world's largest manufacturers of these things. And if it's a Siemens, um, chances are good that it's a 1500. Yeah, I, it's one of the world's most heavily used industrial control system. Okay, so let's talk about the CVE 2022-38773. The Siemens PLC CPU uses this external ATEC chip to do the crypto that allows it to check for the validity integrity of the firmware 
right? Before it boots it up. Um, so that's fine. What can go wrong, right? So the, you know, when we said, okay, typically, you know, the way secure boot is implemented is there is a, a small program, a low level bootloader that will first validate the cryptographic signature, right? Of the, the binary that it wants to, um, it wants to load. But if you read, you know, I think uh, like a few sentences in on the CVE, uh, what happened, you know, like what we found is, you know, any S7-1500 PLC can now, I don't want to say sign, but can generate like bootable firmware for every other 1500 on the planet. Whoa, that's huge. I mean, we just said that the chip might be in up to 46% of the industrial control systems used today. Right. So, <laughs> right, for, for uh, you know, folks who, like, glance at, right, like, the sh <laughs> like, any crypto book at all, you would say, like, time out. What? <laughs> right? Because um, last time I checked, that's not how signature verification works, right? You don't get to just because you can validate a signature doesn't mean that computer can now generate other signatures on behalf of whoever, right? In its advisory, Siemens released new hardware versions for around 120 models. So this is kind of ambiguous. Does that mean that this is a cryptographic implementation flaw, or does this mean that this is a hardware design flaw within the chip? Okay, so it's um, it's it's both, and maybe let's back up. So. The chip is made by microchip, right? So it's an it's an ATEC chip, and um, you know part of the reason why we started looking in this direction is um, you know as we do our work, right, we help our our customers design safer you know, embedded systems, right? So we've actually started to see this this trend of designs that misuse this exact and this type of crypto chip, right, to do secure boot and other things. Ong has seen this before. A bypass such as this is common enough, and he's developed a talk to be delivered in May of this year. You know, we have a paper that we're presenting this year at the host conference. It literally is about mistrusting trust, right? So, you know, uh, this is a good example where we actually get to, you know, dissect and, and, and talk about exactly what went wrong here. Ah, so with this vulnerability in particular, it's not so much that you could compromise one device... You could actually use it to compromise other devices if they have the same PLC. Okay, that's interesting, right? So let's unroll that. <laughs> what does this mean? Um, so yeah, at the heart of the vulnerability, and you know, I don't want to spoil it too much for, for two reasons. One, there's the host paper, and two, it's um kind of the what next and what to do in the in the practical operator sense of the thing, right? But at a high level, yeah, we found that the microchip. Uh, the ATEX secured crypto chip, right, um, that's used during boot to validate the signature, instead of doing asymmetric signature verification, it did symmetric encryption instead. Okay, quick explainer here. Asymmetric, also known as public key cryptography. This involves a private key and a shared key. The shared key is shared, so it's public. But the private key? that only resides in the individual device. In order to work, you need both the public and the private key. With symmetric, there's only one key, and it must be kept private, unless it's not. You know, it's right in the name, right? Symmetric, it goes backwards too. So fundamental concept 
grasping fail, right? Um, and that's the heart of it. So if, you know, and actually for this work, we didn't actually need to extract the key at all because uh, the one job of the, well, like one of the main jobs of this, you know, ATEC chip is to not give out the key, right? It's to, you know, do things on behalf of whoever's requesting, uh, you know, cryptographic operations, but not give out like, here's my whatever key. It can do symmetric and asymmetric operations, you know, so in short, it's not the chip's fault, right? So the ATEC chip is doing exactly what it's supposed to. Um, and we were able to simply take that ATEC chip and use it to encrypt bootable images because it was symmetric encryption instead of signature verification. So that's the heart of the problem. So if I'm hearing this correctly, the hardware was doing what it was supposed to do. It was the cryptographic implementation using symmetric and not asymmetric that caused the problem. But I'm wondering then, could this be a problem in other ATEC chips? You can think about the ATEC chip as a, you know, a slightly fancier TPM, right? So. The chip, you know, during manufactured, the, the manufacturing process, it's provision, it's keyed, right? And the configuration profile and the key material is burnt into the chip, right? And like I said, you know, we didn't have to, nor could we actually extract the key out of that chip, um, nor could we actually change it because, uh, you know, before I left the warehouse, right, all of that material is burnt into every one of these chips that's in every one of the 1500s, you know, that's in the ground today. So just because you use this chip, you know, like doesn't mean that you get the key that, you know, the manufacturer used in this case, Siemens, right? But um, anybody on the planet with a 1500 has one of these chips with the key material that they can use to encrypt bootable images for every other 1500. So going back to the CVE, one thing to remember, CVEs are scored. And when this CVE was scored, even though it is possible to be exploited and possible to be exploited on almost half of the ICS devices out there in the world, it ranked as a 4.6 out of 10. Not very significant. But given what we just heard, it really is significant. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's another interesting story in, in that too. So if you're, you know, for people who are looking at this, uh, the CVE, um, it's really interesting. It, it kind of goes into something like an emotional roller coaster because you'll click on it, you'll say, huh, this is only a 4.6 out of 10. That yeah. doesn't sound very important, right? And you'll look at the list and you say, huh, that's a long list, <laughs> right? Uh, I think the list um, is something like 120 devices, right? Which I think is almost all of the PLCs, CPUs that Siemens makes for the 1500 line. Um, and then you say, well, it's in secure boot. It looks like it's a uh, hardware access required. So short of somebody breaking into my warehouse and connecting probes to my PLC, I think I'm okay. Right. And um, so that's actually untrue. So this is uh, this is something that, you know, by the letter of how CVSS is calculated, right? Uh, there's something of a loophole that leads us to be, you know, at least misleading. What Ong is saying here is that for every CVE, there's a risk assessment done. This is called the Common Vulnerability Scoring System, or CVSS. One of the rules for, you know, calculating the scores is, um, you know, you don't consider 
you, you consider the vulnerability in isolation, right? So you don't think about, oh, I can chain this up with this, right? We're just talking about a single, you know, vulnerability, which makes sense. Right. So vulnerabilities by themselves can be scored low by themselves. But it's important to remember that when they're piggybacked with other vulnerabilities, they are part of an exploit chain. And the composite becomes a much higher risk. So the second part is there is a button you can click to say, you know, this vulnerability is in the hardware. So by definition, it's in secure boot. You know, it's not on some web server code. It's in hardware. Um, and then the loophole is it, you know, it allows the person clicking on these buttons to conflate, requires physical access to exploit, like physical touching with the vulnerabilities in the hardware, right? There's no, there aren't two different options for it. And as soon as you click one of those, right, you know, it gets ca uh, categorized as requires physical access only. Right. So there's a distinction that if it is physical, then you have access to it in order to exploit it. Well, turns out with the secure boot flaw, it can be done remotely. In reality, this is a fundamental design flaw in the hardware itself that is absolutely remotely exploitable. But I think the score that we got is something like a 4.6, which I think is the highest CVSS value you can get that technically is like at physical access required. But again, misleading because this is absolutely something that is remotely exploitable. And the way you would exploit it is the same way you exploit any other computer. If there's any other vulnerability anywhere on the attack surface, right? And if you go back and look at some of the other great research that's been you know, done on the 1500 and the 1200 line of these PLCs, we've seen you know, some vulnerability, remotely exploitable code execution vulns uh, get disclosed and get fixed. But any one of those vulnerabilities where you, you know, the attacker gets to escape out of the sandbox and get any code execution allows them to use this as a payload. Not great. So that begs another question. What type of mitigations can you have if you've got both a physical and remote access vulnerability? You know, so there's, there's, there's some, something to this, right? So, you know, when we first found this vulnerability, we knew that this was, I think, the technical term for it is a doozy that has to get fixed, right? Because this is, um, yeah, like, you know, the writing is kind of on the wall. Like if there's any way of exploiting any of the attack surface, right? This is, you know, the, the thing that allows an attacker to break the device, you know, destroy it, think ransomware, right? Like there's no other lower level here aside from the bootloader. And it seems to affect every single one of these things that's in the ground, you know? So I'm curious, I wonder what the responsible disclosure process actually looked like in this case. We've worked with Siemens for about a year, right, to disclose this vulnerability, you know, knowing that there will be something of a fix because this is just, in my opinion, like too big to just not fix. Um, so I would say, yeah, something like 10 months into the disclosure, you know, what we actually heard official answer, I think, was that, well, we plan to fix this vulnerability by releasing new hardware that's more secure. Oh, man. So this is probably the worst case scenario for an embedded security researcher. In other words, it's not something that Siemens could fix by sending out a firmware update. And I almost do this kind of like cartoon, like <laughs> rub my eyes and read the email again of, I understand those words. How does new hardware fix the existing problem? And, you know, 
you don't have to be a genius to like read not even so much between those words. Um, so that is the state of things, right? Like the official answer, if you look at the Siemens disclosure with that big old table, right? Be, you know, up to the right of every one of the model numbers, it just says no fixed plan or forthcoming. So this is um, this is really bad, in my opinion. There must be mitigations in the meantime. You know, and this is one of the things that I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Okay, what is the role of I as a researcher, right? Us as the people who found this vulnerability and Rebloon as a company, you know, that actually wants to tangibly increase the security of the things that the world depends on, right? Because, you know, it, it's one thing to say, well, I, I found a problem, I've pointed it out, you're welcome, you know, like job done, right? And kind of not think about the consequence of what happens next. Um, you know, in this case, yeah, like we disclosed it, knowing that like this sort of thing usually gets taken seriously and gets fixed. Um, and then not, you know, only 10 months into the process did we realize like, you know, th there's not going to be a fix. So like I thought, there must be some things that you could do to mitigate this problem. So here's what I say, you know, this is what I want to say. We have a tool that generates bootable images that acts as a forensic detection tool that allows operators to at least go into their hardware to see if their pre-boot environment and the things that are typically invisible to the operator has been tampered with or affected in any way, right? We also have, you know, as a company, the, a wide array of firmware attestation technology that we can actually in, inject into the firmware to secure the code, right, against exploitation. So, and this is one of the more philosophical points of, you know, do we, like, where does, you know, secure boot and actual runtime security fit, right? Because, um, you know, it's in this case too, right? I think the attitude or like the, the rationale behind, well, we're not going to fix it is, well, you know, we designed this in the hardware, right? The hardware can't be unburned. So we can't actually do secure boot perfectly. And therefore we're not going to try to do anything else to, you know, increase the security of the product or in firmware. Um, I disagree with that, right? I think, you know, we always work in an imperfect world where there are problems with the underlying assumptions we make in hardware and firmware, you name it. Like this is the story of computer security. So given that we live in the real world, can we actually put more security features into the firmware, right? That detects tempering of the code and data for the operating system and things that run beneath that and above it, right? Knowing that the hardware is imperfect, right? That's pretty much the entirety of what we do at Red Balloon, right? I mean, aside from the research and design, we know we can actually improve the security of these devices. So, you know, we can do that, you know, in the runtime in the firmware, but at least, you know, so, but there are, you know, complications of, you know, no real operator will probably want to take a modified firmware right now from the vendor and put it into, you know, actual operation where, you know, like liability, safety, right, is on the line. So this gets complicated. Let's say a device with a vulnerable PLC has a life or death aspect to it. Let's say it's an elevator. And let's say the elevators have to be certified. What that means is that the software from the vendor gets certified. But if you integrate some mitigation software to monitor it or otherwise protect it from a vulnerability such as this, then, well, you've changed the software. And you're not then still certified, are you? So here... Trying to do the right thing could, in terms of liability, actually turn out to be the wrong thing. Given that, you know, what, what is the next best thing we can do? Well, we have this tool that, you know, you can use 
when you take your PLC offline, right, if you suspect that you might have been, you know, compromised to at least see if there's persistent implant or, you know, forensic data that points to that, right, in your device. So we have that capability. I'm trying to figure out the right way to distribute this capability. Like we need to put it in the hands of the right people in the right way, right? So this is um, still something that I'm figuring out, but I think the right thing, the ethical thing to do is, yeah, try to help the operators as much as we can, right? If there's no fix coming from the vendor, we have the technical capability. Obviously we need to figure out how to distribute this in the right way. So I'm still trying to figure it out, but at least the technical capability is here, right? So this is one of those, you know, for people who are listening, who actually operate these things and might worry about, you know, your 1500 in, in operation, you know, get in touch with Rebel and security, you know, we'll figure out the right way to communicate, right? And maybe advice on how we can do better than not fix it, right? In, in production. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the, um, the official advisory, right, from the vendor in this case is, uh, well, you need to improve the, like, you need to operate this device in a safe, contained network. A safe, contained network, which is a logical network separation. It is not the same as an air gap. I've been saying it for a decade. I'll say it again, right? Like, the air gap is entirely mythological. It does not exist. If you think it exists, like, look in the tons, right? It's a, like steel reinforced bunker, like, like 300 meters on the ground, right? I mean, if people can get access to that and make it do funny things, I, I mean, yes, like, I don't, we've not seen a case where somebody has had a air gap network, right? It's hypothetical. But this is the sort of, uh, you know, advice that you give when you can't give any other advice. So this vulnerability can't really be fixed short of replacing the hardware. And Siemens recommends limiting access to the physical access of the device. Okay, so lock the room that's running these devices. According to Siemens, they also suggest that you monitor it. Yeah, um, you know, it's, um, right, if we, if we just think about parallels of like every other computer, this is probably not all that shocking, right? Because think back to a time when you had a laptop or a desktop that didn't have any fancy secure boot hardware, right? You know, some people remember that. So were we able to do computer security before secure boot? Yeah, right. Are we doing it today on hardware that might not have secure boot? Absolutely, right. Does secure boot help? Sort of, like we talked about. But yeah, um, just because the hardware is flawed and the boot process is flawed doesn't mean that there's nothing that we can do to improve the security of the, the code that runs on top of it. We've been doing it for a long time. We can do it in this case, and. This is, um, yeah, like, you know, from a technical capability perspective, right? Red Balloon, that's, that's the core of what we do. We take imperfect embedded devices and we have automation that allows you to up the security posture of all the things that we depend on today that runs the world. And this device is no different. I think from the perspective of looking back on my career, this is all like software. It started out with these vulnerabilities, these viruses, the bad things that could happen with code. And the software security industry was built up around that to mitigate the flaws in the code. But the software security industry wasn't then thinking about the chips. Because, frankly, the chips were pretty inaccessible for a lot of people. With IoT, those chips are now everywhere, in every home, 
and they're not inaccessible. They're able to communicate over Zigbee and God knows what protocol. So this area is now starting to blow up. And I would say, I hope that we have learned something. And I hope that IoT really is the next big security frontier. Maybe I'm wrong. You know what? You know, it was 10 years ago and it still is because, yeah, it keeps on expanding, right? Like we have an infinite creativity in putting computers that connect to the network in things that are mundane and super important and everything in between. Um, you know, so I've spent quite a bit of time thinking about just the evolution and maturity of like how security happens, you know, in different contexts, right? And I, I actually think that there's a lot of similarity between, let's call it the first wave of computer security, you know, technology from like the late 80s to like the middle, mid 90s, right? With um, how we're evolving to think about ICS security, for example, right? Because uh, if you think back to, um back then, right, you know, we had PCs and all of a sudden people started connecting on you know, them to other computers and dial up and all this stuff, right? And, you know, I'm sure we can find a number of like quotes, you know, like in the early 90s of, of like very expert computer people saying, well, these computers are really nifty and they definitely can't be exploited, right? And along comes, you know, a bunch of like demonstration of how that's wrong. And the first thing that we do is we build a wall, right? We build a perimeter firewall, right? You know, it's stateless. You know, why do we do that? It's because it's a lot easier. Probably the only thing that people can do at the time, because uh, understanding the code of like the computer inside and changing it was really complicated, right? And then we realized, huh, you know, that got us like, I don't know, 60% there, but it's definitely not going to get us like even to 70% because, well, guess what? People found ways around the stateless firewall. And then we built stateful inspection, right? Uh, and then attackers found ways around that. And then we said, huh, you know what we need? We need to make our firewalls learn good, right? And now we have intrusion detection and probabilistic detection, right, around PCs. Um, and then we saw that, well, that was great, but, you know, this still generates like 3% false positive, which sounds really good on paper until you run an operation, right, with real people in it. And you realize, actually, you know what? I would love to talk to a person who reads their snort logs today, right? I guarantee you snort logs are being generated, right? But, right, it becomes, you know, like, not really all that useful because of the false positive, right? And then what we do is we say, aha, uh -huh. we take that output and we put it in a better learning algorithm and we call it deep learning, right? So, you know, that's in, in some way, like, how the general purpose security has sort of evolved, right? And then at the end of the day, if you look at, you know, a trusted computer that you have, like the Xbox or like, whatever your iPhone, whatever the thing is, you know, you don't see anomaly detection, right? You don't see a stateless firewall in it. You see, you know, fundamental security built into the hardware, the operating system, the code that runs on top of it, right? You kind of have to do defense in depth to really get at the problem because the problems in the vulnerability inside the code, you have to secure the code, right? Fundamentally, it begins with secure code, whether it is for IT, internal technology, or OT, operational technology, such as the heating and air conditioning in escalators. I, I think um, the way that if you look at how the market is addressing a lot of like OT problems, right? You know, people like to say, oh, you know, the OT problem is very different. Like it's not, it's just another computer. It looks different. It spins a wheel in a circle sometimes, right? And based on like the size and RPM of that wheel, like that's what 
the function of the thing is from like pumps to cars and whatever, right? So, um, you know, I, I think a lot of the solutions you see is, yeah, let's 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 build a firewall, right? Let, let's like have the perimeter. Let's inspect all these funky, you know, pr protocols. But um, I, I do have this thesis that the same kind of maturing and evolution will happen, right? And I think the ultimate answer, right, to the heart of like how to defend this vulnerable code in the firmware is securing the firmware itself. And I think um, how many pitfalls we make as a as a industry, right, as a world, before we get to that answer, right, is uh, up to us. And this is why you know we do what we do at Revolut Security, right? We're not selling a stateful or a stateless firewall for OT, right? Uh, I fundamentally don't see that as the answer for this round, not the last round, not the next round. I guess fundamentally then, having looked at a lot of these systems on a chip or just the embedded space in general, is there something in common that Ong sees that if only the development community were more aware of, maybe we wouldn't be having some of these problems? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and this is me kind of plugging the uh, the host paper, but what we talk about there is, uh, yes, like, so here we have a number of these sort of trends that we're spotting, right? And I think one of the more interesting ones to think about is hardware security is a double-edged sword, right? And we've seen this over and over again, you know, it's very, like, it makes total sense for a system designer to think, hmm, you know, I want security, I want hardware to do the security, right? And I'm going to buy this crypto chip, it does crypto, I'm going to put it in, and I now have more security. So, you know, that's the very same thing to think. But if you don't use the crypto chip correctly, right? Like we said, you know, you, you might be stuck with the bad implementation stuck in hardware that you can't change. And what's worse, if you don't lock down your hardware, the attacker can come in and use it against you. And that's that's why it's a double-edged sword. So that is a really big trend of, you know, think carefully about, yeah, like, you know, I think it's great that people are thinking about security and thinking like how hardware can help. But, and this is where, you know, Red Balloon can help with this sort of thing, but you got to think really carefully, strategically and tactically about what hardware security you put in and why and how confident you are that that's actually used correctly and not going to be used against you, right? <laughs> right? Um, and I would say, yeah, like in the in the past five years, the vulnerability disclosures that we've talked about, in almost every one of the, those instances, this is this is a theme of hardware being used as a double-edged sword. So, like a good example is um, the trust anchor vulnerability on Cisco, right? So, you know that that came out three four years ago, and it was um, you know a vulnerability in the root of trust. Right, like the, the trust anchor, which is the secure boot thing that Cisco has fielded in pretty much lots and lots of their their devices. Um, yeah, like that's a hardware vulnerability that double-edged sword, you know, just like this one. And regarding CVE twenty twenty two thirty eight seven seven three, are these being exploited in the wild, or are these still theoretical attacks that we're talking about? Look, I hope this is just theoretical. You know, this is why, right? We do security research and we have a ethical disclosure process. Um, and in some sense, well, you never know who knows what, right? Outside of, you know, what we've disclosed. I don't know of an actual instance of this being used in the wild. But then again, if this is used, how would anyone know, right? So I, I think this is like similar to 
for example, like sinful knock, right? So, you know, this was like eight years ago, I think, right? You know, we discovered, right, a whole collection of uh, persistent implants for, for Cisco routers and, and switches and whatnot. Um, and how was that discovered? By accident, right? When something fell over and people like was, they were doing maintenance on the thing. Um, it's very much the same story today, right? So if this is an implant or something that is in the, the bootloader, that if this has actually been used in the wild, and if the attacker didn't do something sloppy, just make the thing crash, how would anybody know? Like there's literally no tool that can tell you this, right? Because we thought we trusted the secure boot thing, which, you know, we see how that has worked out. So that's also why I think it's really important, right, for us to somehow get this forensic implant detector thing in the hands of, of the right people um, before bad people use it, right, in, in real life. Yeah, and I'm hopeful that, you know, if we talk in 10 years, that the future won't be more dystopian. But yeah, great talking to you. I'd really like to thank Ong for coming on the show and talking about this vulnerability, CVE 2022-38773. Ong will be presenting more on this general topic of secure boot vulnerabilities at the IEEE International Symposium on Hardware-Oriented Security and Trust, better known as HOST Conference, May 2023 in San Jose, California. And if you want to learn more about the vulnerability or just how to monitor embedded systems in general, Check out redballoon.com for more information. Hey, I'm just getting started with error code. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon or at robertvamosi on Twitter. And tell me what you like and even what you don't. I've got some great episodes coming up, including one on the IoT-based Zodnost botnet. Subscribe today on your favorite podcast platform. I don't want you to miss out. <laughs>